Negro Slavery Unjustifiable, a Discourse, by Alexander Leod, A.M. Pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Congregation in the City of New York, Whosoever looketh unto the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James 1, 25. New York printed by T. and J. Swords, number 99 Pearl Street, 1802. Advertisement. The author of this discourse had a call presented to him, in November, 1800 to take the pastoral charge of a congregation in the county of Orange, in the state of New York. He perceived among the subscribers the names of, some whom he knew to be holders of slaves, he doubted the consistency of enslaving the Negroes with the Christian system, and was unwilling to enter into a full ecclesiastic communion with those who continued the practice. He hesitated to accept the call, but took an early opportunity of writing to the elders of the church and of intimating to the Presbytery his sentiments respecting slavery. The Reformed Presbytery has judicially condemned the practice, and warned their connections against it. This produced an additional evidence of the force of Christian principle, it triumphed over self-interest, and, in several parts of the United States, have men sacrificed, on the altar of religion, the property, which the civil law gave them and their fellow men. There is not a slaveholder now in the communion of the Reformed Presbytery. A sense of duty determined the author to commit this discourse to the press. In the publication of it he has particularly in view the instruction and establishment of those inhabitants of Orange, who have placed themselves under his pastoral care. Through them he addresses all into whose hands the discourse may come. If the Redeemer shall be pleased to bless it, and render it the means of ameliorating the bondage, or of procuring the liberty of any miserable African, the author shall receive more than a recompense. The practice of holding men in perpetual slavery condemned. Exodus 21, 16. He that stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. God is omnipotent. His omnipotence is necessary, and independent of every other being. He is the source from which all power flows. Whatever physical force can be exerted by man, is derived from his maker. In the exercise of natural power man is under a law to God. He is indeed a free agent, but the divine law circumscribes his sphere of action, and marks out boundaries, which he cannot pass with impunity. To exert his natural powers under the direction of law is right, to exercise any powers derived from God, contrary to his declared will, is wrong. Whatever is included in the grant God has made to the human family, is one of the rights of man, and beyond this grant, contrary to God's law, man cannot claim a right, until he shakes off his dependency, and elevates his own authority until it become paramount to, that which is exercised by Jehovah. Whosoever attempts to deprive any of the human family of the former, or put him in possession of the latter, is guilty of treason against heaven, unless he is expressly commissioned in this particular instance, to contradict the general principles of law, by the same great authority from which the law derives its binding force. He who, without this authority, breaks over the barriers of law, and, with physical force, deprives his neighbor of liberty or property, is an enemy to God and to man, much more so he who commences an unprovoked attack on any of his fellow men, and, with lawless power, steals him from his connections barters him for some other commodity, 
or forces him to labor for the benefit of another, and that other an enemy, who has committed, or countenanced the commission of the theft. The divine law declares this a crime, and prescribes the punishment. He who stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. This law was given to the Hebrews as a body politic, but it proceeds on a moral ground, and is, consequently, obligatory still on every subject of moral government. He who acknowledges the morality of the eighth precept of the Decalogue, will not require another proof of the morality of the conduct recommended in the text. If he who steals my purse, my coat, or my horse, be guilty of an immorality, he cannot be innocent, who robs me of my father, my brother, my wife, or my child. Against this principle an inspired apostle directs his argument, in his epistle to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient for man-stealers, and if there be any other thing, that is contrary to sound doctrine. Man-stealing is classed with the most detestable crimes. It is considered not only reprehensible among the ancient Hebrews, but a moral evil, in every age, and in every nation. From the text, I consider myself authorized to lay, before you the following proposition the practice of buying, holding, or selling our unoffending fellow creatures as slaves is immoral. The text will certainly support this proposition, according to the common principles of law, the receiver of stolen goods, if you know them to be such, is esteemed guilty as well as the thief. The slaveholder never had a right to force a man into his service, or to retain him, without an equivalent. To sell him, therefore, is to tempt another to sin, and to dispose of that, for money, too, which he never had a right. The proposition does not militate against slavery under every form. By no means. A man, by the abuse of his powers, to the injury of society, may forfeit liberty, and even life he may deserve slavery in the fullest sense of the word, in order that his punishment may be a sanction to the law may be an example to others and may compensate, as much as possible, for the injuries done to society. By innocent fellow creatures, in the proposition, it is not designed to teach that any of the human race is so in relation to the divine law it is not to be understood in a moral, but in a political sense. As the subjects of Jehovah's government, we are all guilty, and deserve to perish. We have merited eternal imprisonment from him. But, in relation to civil society, men are deemed innocent, unless they have violated its laws. These are assuredly entitled to personal freedom. It is intended, in this discourse, to confirm the doctrine of the proposition, to answer objections to it and make some improvement of it. I. To hold any of our fellow men in perpetual slavery is sinful. 1. This appears from the inconsistency of the practice of holding slaves with the natural rights of man, this is a term, which has been much abused. It is proper that accurate ideas should be annexed to it, otherwise its force, in the present argument, will not be perceptible. If man were a being, owing his existence to accident, and not a creature of God, his rights would indeed be negative. If he stood in a state of independency of his maker, and not a subject of law, his rights could be determined only by the will of society. But he is neither the son of chance nor the possessor of independency. His life and his faculties are the gift of God. From heaven he derives positive rights, defined by positive precepts. 
one considering man as a free agent, by the constitution of nature he has a right to the exercise of freedom, in conformity to the precepts of that law, by which the author of nature has ordered him to regulate his actions. A delegated power he has from God, and no creature has a right to restrict him in its rightful exercise. To oppose the force of an individual, or of a society, to this, is to wage war against the supreme ruler it is an attempt, to reduce a moral agent to a mere machine, whose motions are to be regulated by external force, and, consequently, a denial of his right to the person enslaved, and an arrogant assumption of lawless authority by the usurper. Is it necessary to pursue this argument before an American audience? It is generally, if not universally admitted. The principle is stated and maintained in that instrument, which lies at the foundation of your national existence. In defense of it you have fought you have appealed to the Lord of hosts, and in its support he has led on your armies to victory. 2. If an opposite principle of action were universally admitted, it would lead to absolute absurdity. A demonstration of this will confirm the proposition. If one man have a right to the services of another, without an equivalent, right stands opposite and contrary to right. This confounds the distinction between right and wrong. It destroys morality, and justice between man and man, between nation and nation. I have a right to enslave and sell you. You have an equal right to enslave and sell me. The British have a right to enslave the French, and the French the British the Americans the Africans, and the Africans the Americans. This would be to expel right from the human family, to resolve law into force, and justice into cunning. In the struggle of contending rights, violence would be the only arbiter. The decisions of reason would be perverted, and the sane of morality extirpated from the breast. Such absurdity will meet with few advocates, to plead its cause in theory. Is it not, therefore, lamentable, that any should indulge a principle, or countenance a practice, the justification of which would necessarily lead to it? But, 3. The practice of enslaving our fellow man stands equally opposed to the general tenor of the sacred scriptures. The Bible is the criterion of doctrine and conduct. It represents the European and the Asiatic, the African and the American, as different members of the same great family the different children of the same benign and universal parent. God has made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the bounds of their habitation. Acts 17, 26 In relation to one another, they are equally bound to the exercise of benevolence, and are respected as naturally having no inequality of rights. Every man is bound to respect his fellow man as his neighbor, and is commanded to love him as himself. To our reciprocal duties the divine Jesus summarily comprehends in that direction calmly called the golden rule whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them for this is the law and the prophets. 3. This is the sum of the duties inculcated in the law of Moses, and in the writings of the inspired prophets. How opposite the spirit of these precepts and doctrines to the practice of the slaveholder. If he is consistent with himself he will reason thus these slaves are not of one blood with me. They are not entitled to the love I give to my neighbor. The conduct which I should pursue, were I enslaved by another, I would not recommend to them. I shall feed and clothe them from the same principle, that I feed and stable my cattle. They are my property as much as these, 
and when they do not serve my purpose agreeably to my wishes, I shall dispose of them for money to another trafficker in human flesh. I acknowledge, if any person was to enslave me, I should endeavor to embrace that first opportunity of making my escape. But if my negro offers to run away, I shall pursue, and severely chastise him. He has no right to leave his master, the rule, whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye also so to them, notwithstanding. I need not add, brethren, that such sentiments are opposite to the principles of the Christian religion. 4. The practice, which I am opposing is a manifest violation of four precepts of the Decalogue. If this can be shown, it will be an additional confirmation of the doctrine of the proposition. Revelation informs us, that whosoever offends in one point is guilty of all. James 2, 10. And the reason is added, because the same authority is wantonly opposed in at one point, which gives sanction to the whole of divine revelation. By inference, therefore, the whole Decalogue is violated, but there is a direct breach of the fifth, the sixth, the eighth and the tenth commandments. The fifth requires the performance of those duties, which respect the several relations, in which we stand to one another, and particularly enforces obedience to our natural parents. The Christian's duty to the wretched African, brought providentially under his care, is to afford him the necessaries of life, to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to instruct him in the knowledge of his duty and his rights, to habituate him to honest industry, to help him to some business for himself, and set him at liberty from his control. But the slaveholder exercises often a cruel, always an illegitimate, authority over his slave. He destroys, to a great degree, natural relationship. He sets aside the authority of the immediate parent, and, in opposition to the divine law, which commands each to honor his father and mother, the child is taught, from the cradle, that his duty consists in implicit obedience to the command of his master. The sixth requires the use of all lawful means, to preserve the lives of men. But ah! Uh, slavery, how many hast thou murdered? Thou hast kindled wars among the miserable Africans. Thou hast carried the captive, who escaped death, into a still more miserable state. Thou hast torn from the bosom of the grieved mother her beloved daughter, and broughtest down the gray hairs of an aged parent, with sorrow, to the grave. Thou hast huffed them on board thy floating prisons, and hast chained them in holds, which have soon extinguished the remaining spark of life. The few, who have escaped thou hast deprived of liberty, dear itself in life. The eighth forbids the unlawful hindrance of our neighbor's wealth. The whole life of the slaveholder is an infringement upon it. The labor of a man is worth more than his food and clothing, but the slave receives no more. His master robs him of the fruits of industry. He steals him from his relations. He robs him of his liberty of action. He steals him from himself. The tenth commandment forbids all inordinate desires after worldly property. The practice of the slaveholder is an evidence of his avarice. He employs servants without wages. He sells to a hard master, for money, the man and the woman whose severe services have already done more than make him compensation for any trouble or expense to, which they had subjected him. Not only the avaricious merchant, who sails to the coast of Africa with a ship fitted out with the implements of cruelty, in order to import, and expose to sale our sable brethren, but the American slaveholder also, 
is convicted of a breach of the tenth precept of the moral law. 5. The system against which I contend is also inimical to that benevolent spirit, which is produced and cherished by the gospel of free grace. In the system of grace all men are represented as proceeding from one payer, as fallen from a state of integrity and happiness, into a situation, that is sinful and miserable. God is revealed as beholding man in this condition with an eye of benevolence having pity for the distressed, mercy for the miserable, and grace for the unworthy. Jesus, God in our nature, appointed as the Savior of sinners, and without respect of persons, gathering from the north and from the south, from the east and from the west, out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation, and innumerable multitude, to be introduced, through his divine mediation, into a state of unspotted purity and unspeakable happiness. The influence, which the grace of the gospel has upon the heart, is to cultivate, increase, and perfect every benevolent affection, and suppress all malevolence, extirpating the principles of sinful selfishness from the soul to produce a spirit of meekness and self-denial, of readiness to forgive real injuries, and of prayer for the good of our enemies. Yes, the spirit of the gospel is love to God and to man, evidencing its existence by suitable exertions for the glory of our Creator, and the happiness of all our brethren, here and hereafter. How does this system, Christian, correspond with the slave trade? You behold your African brethren in the same miserable state, in which you are yourself by nature. For do you not sympathize with them? Your Maker has not excluded them from a share in His love, nor has the blessed Redeemer interdicted them from claiming a share in a salvation. How can you degrade them, therefore, from that rank which their Maker has assigned to them, and endeavor to assimilate them to the beasts that perish? By divine grace you are taught not to love this world, nor to be conformed to its sinful practices. Romans 12, 2 Look at your slave. How came you by him? who had a right to tear his father from the bosom of his friends, in order to enslave him and his offspring, and sell this wretched victim to you. How long will religion suffer you, to retain him in bondage? For life? Ah! Hard-hearted Christian! Is it thus you imitate his example, who died for your sins? Who voluntarily descended from his heavenly glory, and humbled himself into the death, in order to deliver you from slavery? On him rested the Spirit of the Lord, for he preached glad tidings unto the meek. He proclaimed liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison doors to them who were bound. Isaiah 61, 1. Does the same Spirit rest on you? Does it produce a similar disposition? Consider the contrast, consider it attentively. You have pronounced heavy tidings in the ear of your slave. You have proclaimed bondage for life to the captive. You have even closed upon him the door of hope in his prison. You have purposed to enslave his offspring. Merciful God! How unmerciful do thy creatures act towards one another! 6. The last argument I shall use for confirming the doctrine of the proposition, shall be taken from the pernicious consequences of the system of slavery. To this manner of reasoning there can be no valid objection, if it be kept within proper boundaries. That evil consequences follow a certain practice is not always a decisive evidence that the practice is wrong, but it is a sufficient reason for us to pause and examine it in the light of truth. If we be required, in the divine law, to pursue this path, we must obey, 
leaving the consequences to his management who commands us. If it be itself lawful, but not requisite, evil consequences presenting themselves would teach us not to proceed. But if it really be a forbidden path, the pernicious effects of traveling it are additional warnings, against continuing in it any longer. Ministers are commanded to preach the gospel, though it should prove the occasion of submitting many to tribulation in this life, and be to many a savor of death unto death in the next. It was lawful for the apostle to the Gentiles, to eat whatsoever meat was sold in the shambles, but if his using this liberty would have been productive of evil consequences, he would have instantly desisted from the practice. 1 Corinthians 8, 13 If, then, from a lawful practice, it be expedient to desist, because, although to ourselves useful, it is detrimental to others, it is certainly our duty to relinquish a system, which is dubious in its nature. When we have presumptive evidence, that we are fundamentally wrong, evil consequences are decisive against us, and, as in the case before us, when other evidences condemn the practice, its pernicious consequences loudly demand that from it we should immediately desist. 1. This practice has a tendency to destroy the finer feelings, and render the heart of man more obdurate. The butcher, long inured to slaughter, is not hurt at the lowing of the oxen or the bleeding of the lambs, which he is about to kill. 5. Nor is the common executioner much agitated in his work of blood, whether the victim be innocent or guilty. The slave may roar under the lash of his master, without commanding the least sympathy. The slaveholder views all the Ethiopian races born to serve. His heart is steeled against them. Nor is the transition great to become hard-hearted to all men. The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions the most unremitting despotism on the one part, and degrading submission on the other. The parent storms the child looks on, catches the lineaments of wrath, puts on the same airs in the circle of smaller slaves, gives a loose to the worst of his passions, and thus nursed, educated, and daily exercised in tyranny, cannot but be stamped by it with odious peculiarities. The man must be a prodigy, who can retain his manners and morals undepraved by such circumstances. 6. 2. It debases a part of the human race, and tends to destroy their intellectual and active powers. The slave, from his infancy, is obliged implicitly to obey the will of another. There is no circumstance, which can stimulate him to exercise his own intellectual powers. There is much to deter him from such exercise. If he think or plan, his thoughts and plans must give way to those of his master. He must have less depravity of heart than his white brethren, otherwise he must, under this treatment, become thoughtless and sullen. The energies of his mind are left to slumber. Every attempt is made to smother them. It is not surprising that such creatures should appear deficient in intellect. Their moral principles also suffer. They are never cultivated. They are early suppressed. While young, the little tyrants of their master's family rule over them with rigor. No benevolent tie can exist between them. The slave, as soon as he can exercise his judgment, observes laws to protect the life, the liberty and the property of his master, but no law to procure these for him. He is private property. His master's will is his rule of duty. We have no right to expect morality or virtue from such an education and such examples. 3. 
Another evil consequence is the encouragement of licentiousness and debauchery. The situation of the blacks is, such as to afford every encouragement to a criminal intercourse. This is not confined to the blacks themselves, but frequently and shamefully exists between them and their masters. The lust of the master may be gratified and strengthened by intercourse with the slave, without fear of prosecution for the support of the offspring, or the character of the mother. The situation of these women admits a few guards to their chastity. Their education does not strengthen it. In the southern states, illicit connection with a negro or mulatto woman is spoken of as quite a common thing. No reluctance, delicacy or shame appear about the matter. The number of mulattoes in the northern states prove that this evil is also prevalent among their inhabitants, it is usually a concomitant of slavery. 4. This leads to a fourth lamentable consequence the destruction of natural affection. An irregular intercourse renders it difficult for the father to ascertain his proper offspring. Among the slaves themselves marriage is a slender tie. The master sells the husband to a distance from his wife, and the mother is separated from her infant children. This is a common thing. It must destroy, in a great measure, natural affection. Nor is the evil confined to the slaves. Their master, in this instance, exceeds them in hardness of heart. He sees a slave nursing an infant resembling himself in color and in features. Probably it is his child, his nephew, or his grandchild. He beholds such, however, not as relatives, but as slaves, and rejoices in the same manner that he doer, in viewing the increase of his cows or his horses. 7. 5. Domestic tyranny, which exists as a correlative to domestic slavery, is a nursery for civil tyrants. Powerful must be the force of other principles, and singular the combination of circumstances, which can render an advocate for domestic slavery a sincere friend of civil liberty. Is it possible? If he can buy, sell, and enslave for life, any individual of the human race, for no reason but self-interest, I should be unwilling to trust him with the affairs of a nation, had he it in his power, to do it with impunity, and did it appear conducive to his interest or gratifying to his ambition, he would become as really a despot, as the most arbitrary monarch. 6. This practice is calculated to bring down the judgments of God on societies and individuals. The toleration of slavery is a national evil. It is the worst of robberies sanctioned by law. It is treason against heaven a conspiracy against the liberties of his subjects. If the judge of all the earth shall do right, he cannot but punish the guilty. Nations, as such, have no existence in a future state they must expect national judgments in the present. Distributive justice will measure their punishment according to their criminality. O America, what hast thou to account for on the head of slavery? Thou alone, of all the nations now on the earth, didst commission thy delegates, in peace, and in security from the overawing menaces of a tyrant, or of factions, to form thy constitution. Thou didst possess, in a peculiar sense, the light of reason, of science, of revelation, of past argumentation, and of past experience. Thou hadst thyself formerly condemned the principle, and, in the most solemn manner, made an appeal to heaven for the justice of thy cause. Heaven heard, and answered agreeably to thy wishes. Yet thou didst contradict the principles so solemnly asserted. 
Thou hast made provision for increasing the number and continuing the bondage of thy slaves. Thy judgments may tarry, but they will assuredly come. Eight individuals are also in danger. Those who live without God in the world may have temporal judgments inflicted upon them for the part they have acted in the encouragement of slavery, but the time of retribution is in the world to come. Even real Christians, the guilt of whose sins is removed through the atonement of a Jesus, but who have learned the way of the heathen so far as, to confirm to the wicked practice of buying, selling, and retaining slaves, have a right to expect severe corrections. Psalm 89, 30-32 In proportion, as they have an opportunity of ascertaining duty, will their danger increase, unless they cheerfully sacrifice interest to it. He who knows his master's will, and doeth it not, shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12, 47 I speak to you, who parley with this temptation you who, in defiance of conviction, are determined to go on in the paths of self-interest. In this very path you may meet correction. Your treasures are not secure. There is a God, and while godliness continues to have the promise of the life which now is, as well as that which is to come, none those who continue to practice on the system of slavery may expect to suffer loss. Watch them close they may one day elude your vigilance, and escape with your treasure. The enslaved Hebrews were allowed to escape with the jewels of the Egyptians. You may lose, in a similar manner, as much of your property, as you have withheld from them of their earnings, whom you retain in bondage. If not, God has it in his power to send mildew, and blasting upon your crops murin and pestilence among your herds until you sustain a greater loss than you would have suffered by giving liberty to your slaves. I should think it a favorable evidence, though not a conclusive argument, that God has a regard for you, if you are thus chastised for your oppression of your brethren. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. 10 I have now finished, what I design to say in confirmation of the doctrine of the proposition, and shall proceed, too. To refute objections offered to the principle I have been defending. It is not to be expected that every objection shall now occur. Some that are made probably I never heard, and some which I have heard may have escaped my recollection. I shall not, however, designly evade any that has the appearance of argument. I shall examine each in order to ascertain its full value. Objection I. Nature has made a distinction between man and man. One has stronger intellectual powers than another. As physical strength prevails in the subordinate ranks of creation, let superiority of intellect preside among intelligent creatures. The Europeans and their descendants are superior in this respect to the Africans. These latter are, moreover, in their own country, miserable. Their state is not rendered worse by being enslaved. It is just for the more intelligent to rule over the more ignorant, and to make use of their services. Answer. The distinctions, which nature makes between man and man are probably not so great, as those which owe their existence to adventitious circumstances. The inferiority of the blacks to the whites has been greatly exaggerated. 11. Let the fact, however, be granted, and yet the inference, which is the principle of the objection will not follow. It is the essence of tyranny. It is founded in false notions concerning the nature of man. You say, a greater proportion of intellect gives a right to rule over the less intelligent. 
but you are to observe that man is not only a creature capable of intellectual exertion, but also one who possesses moral sentiments, and a free agent. He has a right, from the constitution given him by the author of nature, to dispose of himself, and be his own master in all respects, except in violating the will of heaven. He naturally acts agreeably to the motives presented to him, with a liberty of choice respecting them. He who argues a right to rule from natural endowments must have more than a superior understanding to show. He must evidence a superiority of moral excellence, and an investiture with authority, otherwise he can have no right to set aside the principle of self-government, and act in opposition to that freedom, which is necessarily implied in personal responsibility to the supreme moral governor. Consider the consequences which the objection, if granted, would involve. He who could, by cunning contrivance, reduce his innocent and more simple neighbor under his power, would be justifiable in enslaving him and his offspring forever. All the usurpation of men of genius without virtue, from the days of Pharaoh to those of Bonaparte, would be justifiable on this principle. As for the circumstance of the Africans being wretched while at their own disposal, you are not accountable for it. Friendship for them is not well shown in the slave trade. Your wicked traffic has already rendered them more wicked and wretched even in Africa. If you have ameliorated the condition of one, you have rendered more painful the condition of thousands. 12. Objection EI. The Negroes are a different race of people from us. Their capacities, their shape, their color, and their smell, indicate their procedure originally from a different pair. They are inferior to the white people in all these respects. This gives a right to the superior race, to rule over them, as really as nature gives a right to the use of the other subordinate ranks of animated being. Answer. This goes upon the footing of discrediting scripture authority. In a discourse to professed Christians I might reject it without consideration. There may, however, be in my hearing a slaveholder, who is an unbeliever of revelation. I would reason even with him, that, if possible, I may serve the cause of justice, of liberty, and of man. The use of sound reason in philosophy Christianity by no means discards. The principle of your argument is inadmissible, and, if it were not, it would not serve your purpose. 1. It is inadmissible. Among the individuals of every species there is a difference. No more causes than are sufficient to account for any phenomenon are required by the rules of philosophizing. The action of the elements on the human body, the diet and the manners of men, are causes sufficient to account for that change in the organization of bodies, which gives them a tendency to absorb the rays of light, to perspire more freely, and to put on the shape, which is peculiar to the inhabitants of Guinea and their descendants. A single century will make a forcible distinction between the inhabitants of a northern and a southern climate, when the diet and manners are similar. A difference in these can make a distinction in the same latitude. It is impossible to prove that twenty or thirty centuries, during which successive generations did not mingle with a foreign race, could not give to the African Negro, that peculiarity of bodily appearance, which so stubbornly adheres to him when translated into another clime. A few years of a hot sun may produce a swarthiness of complexion, which the mildest climate cannot, for years, exchange for a rosy cheek. According to the laws for propagating the species, the offspring resembles the parent. 
it is not to be expected that a very apparent change should be wrought on the complexion of the offspring of Negroes already in this country. Ten times the number of years, which have passed over the heads of the successive generations on the coast of Guinea, may be necessary, before the Negroes can retrace the steps, by which they have proceeded from a fair countenance to their present shining black. The causes of bodily variety in the human species, which I have stated are known to exist. 13. It is highly unphilosophical, to have recourse to others which are only conjectural. Enmity to revelation makes many one drink himself a philosopher. But, too, if the principle were just it would be invalid it would not answer your purpose. If you adopt the hypothesis of several original and distinct pairs, by whom the earth was peopled, you cannot determine where to stop. The different nations of Europe and of Asia, and the different tribes of America, may have had different original parents, all upon the footing of subordination one to the other. 14. If the principle of your objection were admissible, it would prove too much, lead to absurdity, and is therefore capable of proving nothing. Each nation might claim a superiority of rank over the other. Right would be opposed to right, and cunning and violence would be the only umpires. Involve not yourself in such inextricable difficulties, in advocating a practice truly indefensible. Objection 3. I firmly believe the scriptures. All the families of the earth are brethren. They are originally descended from Adam, and secondarily from Noah. But the blacks are the descendants of Ham. They are traitor a curse, and a right is given to their brethren to rule over them. We have a divine grant, in Genesis 9, 25-27, to enslave the Negroes. Answer. This threatening may have extended to all the descendants of Ham. It is, however, to be noticed, that it is directed to Canaan, the son of Ham. In order to justify Negro slavery from this prophecy, it will be necessary to prove four things. 1. That all the posterity of Canaan were devoted to suffer slavery. 2. That African Negroes are really descended of Canaan. 3. That each of the descendants of Shem and Japheth has a moral right to reduce any of them to servitude. 4. That every slaveholder is really descended from Shem or Japheth. What a proof in any one of these particulars will invalidate the whole objection. In a practice so contrary to the general principles of the divine law, a very express grant from this supreme authority is the only sanction to us. But not one of the four facts specified as necessary can be supported with unquestionable documents. On each of them, however, we may spend a thought. 1. The threatening is general. It does not imply particular personal servitude as much as political inferiority and national degradation. It does not imply that every individual of that race should of right be kept in a state of slavery. 2. It is possible the Negroes are descended from Ham. It is even probable. But it is almost certain that they are not the offspring of Canaan. The boundaries of their habitation are defined. Genesis 9, 19. The Canaanitish territory is generally known from subsequent history. 3. The supposition, however, that the curse fell on the Negroes, may be granted with safety to the cause of, those who are opposed to the system by which they are enslaved. It will not serve as a warrant for this practice. It is not to be considered as a rule of duty, but as the prediction of a future event. 
God has, in his providence, given many men over to slavery, to hardships, and to death. But this does not justify the tyrant and the murderer. Had it been predicted, in so many words, that the Americans should, in the beginning of the 19th century, be in possession of African slaves, we might argue from the fact the truth of the prophecy, but not the propriety of the slaveholder's conduct. It was foretold that Israel should be in bondage in Egypt Genesis 15:13. This did not justify the cruelty of Pharaoh. He was a vessel of wrath. Jesus, our God and Redeemer, was the subject of many predictions. According to ancient prophecy, and to satisfy divine justice, he was put to death. The characters who fulfilled this prediction were wicked to an extreme. Acts 2, 23. 4. Slaveholders are probably the descendants of Japheth, although it cannot be legally ascertained. And they may be fulfilling the threatening on Canaan, although they are not innocent. Be not afraid, my friends, prophecy shall be fulfilled, although you should liberate your slaves. This prediction has had its accomplishment 3,000 years ago. The descendants of Shem did, by divine direction, under the conduct of Joshua, subjugate the offspring of Canaan, when they took possession of the promised land. This naturally leads us to consider another objection the most plausible argument, that can possibly he offered in defense of the unhallowed practice, of holding our fellow man in perpetual bondage. Objection I've God permitted the ancient Israelites to hold their fellow creatures in servitude. Men and women were bought and sold among them. The bond servant is called his master's money. Exodus 21, 21. Had it been wrong in its nature to enslave any human being, God could not have granted the Hebrews a permission to do it. Negro slavery, stripped of some accidental cruelties, is not necessarily wicked. Answer. This objection requires minute attention. The fact is granted. Heaven did permit the Hebrews to purchase some of the human race for servitude. The general principle deduced from this fact is also granted. It is, in certain cases, lawful to enslave our fellow creatures. The application of it to justify the practice of modern nations is by no means admissible. God is the Lord of the universe. As the supreme governor, he does what is right. His subjects have violated his law, abused their liberty, and rebelled against the majesty of heaven. They have forfeited to his justice the liberty and the life he gave them. These they must yield. They will, at the time appointed by the judge, be enclosed in the grave. The sovereign has also a right to the use, of whatever instrument he chooses in the execution of the sentence. He may choose the famine or the pestilence, the winds or the waves, wild beasts or human beings, to be the executioners. Again civil society has certain laws, to which its members, voluntarily claiming its privileges, have assented. A violation of these is the violation of a contract, and the penalty stipulated must be paid by the offender. When, by a person's licentiousness, justice is violated, or society endangered, it is just and necessary to enslave the criminal, and make his services, if possible, useful to society. This much I cheerfully grant, and shall now proceed to show that the objection does not apply to the doctrine, which I have been in devouring to establish. You cannot argue conclusively, in defense of Negro slavery, 
from the practice of the ancient Hebrews, unless you can prove, first, that the slavery into which they were permitted to reduce their fellow creatures was similar to that in which the Negroes are held and, too dearly, that you have the same permission which they had extended to you. If proof fails in either of these, the objection is invalid, and I undertake to show that both are without proof. I. The servitude into which the Hebrews were permitted to reduce their fellow men was attended with such restrictions, as rendered it essentially different from the Negro slave trade. It may be considered, 1. With reference to their brethren, 2. As it respected strangers, 1. A natural descendant of Abraham might, in two cases, be sold by the magistrates into servitude. These were theft and insolvency. And so great was the regard for freedom which their code of laws discovered, that even the thief could not be enslaved, while he had property sufficient to answer the demands of the law for the theft. Exodus 22. 1-4. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep, and kill it, or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for the ox, and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. The servitude into which the debtor was sold for the benefit of the creditor was not severe. Leviticus 25, 39-43 If thy brother that dwelleth with thee be waxen poor, and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bond servant, but as an hired servant, and as a sojourner he shall be with thee. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shalt fear thy God. In both cases the duration of the species of slavery was limited to six years. On the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Exodus 21, 2. And it was required, in the case of the debtor, that his master should give him some stock, on which he might again begin business for the support of his family. Deuteronomy 15, 12-15. When thou sendest him out free, thou shalt furnish him liberally of thy flock, thy floor, and thy wine press. Both these laws evidence their greatest care of the liberties of individuals, which is consistent with the real interest of the nation. They are strong motives to industry, and guard against burdensome taxation for the support of prisons. 2. There were two classes of aliens with respect to which the Israelitish law gave directions, those who belonged to any of the neighboring Canaanitish tribes in particular, and such as belonged to other nations in general. With respect to the latter, the law was exactly the same as to the Hebrews themselves. Leviticus 24, 20 Ye shall have one manner of law, as well for the stranger, as for one of your own country. Verse 35, next chapter. If thy brother be waxen poor, then thou shalt relieve him yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner. But there are particular exceptions from this general law, which guaranteed from invasion the life, the liberty, and the property of aliens. These exceptions refer to the remains of the conquered tribes living among the Israelites, or to such of the nations of Canaan as were around them. Leviticus 25, 44, 45 Of the heathen that are round about you, shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Of the children of the strangers that sojourn among you, shall ye buy, and of the families, which they beget in your land. This permission was merciful. The descendants of Abraham were expressly appointed the executioners of the divine sentence against the tribes of Canaan. Extermination was the command, 
but on their voluntary subjection they were only reduced into a state of servitude. The Israelites were forbidden to use them harshly. Exodus 21, 26 Accordingly, the Jibayanites, when they craftily obtained the safety of their lives, were reduced into the situation of bond servants. Joshua 9 When Saul treated them with cruelty, God was offended, and even punishing David, because he did not avenge that cruelty on the house of Saul, at an early part of his reign. 2 Samuel 21, 1 I proceed, too, to prove that this example is not for our imitation. The Israelites themselves had no right to fit out their ships with their implements of cruelty, in order to steal, buy, stow away, and chain men of other nations, living, without injury to them, at a distance from their shores. Had they done so, no future traffic could have rendered their prizes legitimate. They were officially employed by heaven, to punish the iniquity of the nations which they vanquished. They were ordered to subdue, destroy or enslave the descendants of Canaan, and take possession of the land to run in it to their father Abraham, as a peculiar people, they were to be kept distinct until Messiah should come. The remains of foreign nations could not, therefore, be admitted to the rights of citizenship. The wall of partition is now broken down. All mankind are our brethren. There is no similarity of circumstances between us and the ancient Hebrews no divine permission that can justify us in holding slaves. Although the slavery were exactly the same with it into which the blacks are reduced, the practice of modern nations would remain unjustifiable. The descendants of Shem have, in the Hebrew nation, reduced Canaan into a state of servitude, and the offspring of Japheth have supplanted those of Shem in both spiritual and temporal privileges. Objection V. Slavery was tolerated, in the primitive ages of Christianity, by the Roman laws. It is not condemned by Christ or his apostles. They have given directions for the conduct of master and slave. 1 Timothy 6, 1. They have not intimated that the practice of keeping man in slavery was sinful. Answer. What you have asserted is not correct, and, if it had been, it would be no objection to the principles for which I contend. The New Testament does condemn the slave trade. 1 Timothy 1, 10. Man stealing is here reprobated, together with every practice, which is contrary to sound doctrine and the spirit of the glorious gospel in Corinthians 7, 21. If thou mayest be made free, use it rather. It is recommended to the slave, if he is able, to procure his liberty. If he has no fair means of obtaining it, it is his duty patiently to continue in bondage. 15 The Gospel Hope Comforts Him the New Testament says Colossians 4, 1, Masters, give unto your servants, that which is just and equal. Treat them justly, use them mercifully, pay them lawful wages, give them an equivalent for their services. But, supposing the scriptures had been silent on this subject, the objector could not justify Negro slavery from that silence. If it prove anything it will prove too much. It will prove the justice of the worst of tyranny the most dreadful cruelty, because Nero is not specified as an infamous tyrant in the New Testament. It will prove that you have a right, to sell your own children, as slaves 16 to kidnap your neighbor, your countryman and your friend. You need not, therefore, confine your traffic in human flesh to the African race. You may extend it even to your own children.
But if such practices are not formally mentioned and condemned in the New Testament, the principles from which they proceed are reprobated in the strongest terms. The whole system of slavery is opposite to the spirit of that religion, which is righteousness and peace. True religion shears the heart both of the subject of a tyrant and the slave of a master. It teaches them their duty as men, as social beings, as citizens of the world, while it reprobates the character, who holds them in durance, and I condemns the tenor upon which he holds his authority. It does not alter the external condition of the believer, unless it reaches the heart of those who are in power. It teaches him faithfulness and sobriety, patience and resignation, until God, in his providence, affords him an opportunity of being more usefully active in the restoration of moral order to society. Objection Vive. I abhor the principle. The practice of importing and selling men is detestable. But here they are. We found them slaves. We are not obliged, at the expense of our property, to set them at liberty. The community in general will not consent to it. They will therefore be slaves. I want a servant. I may purchase and hold a slave. His condition will not be rendered worse by serving me. I am bound to treat him mercifully but, as matters are now situated, there can be no evil in my keeping him in bondage. Answer. If men were not strongly influenced by interested motives, they could not impose so far on their own understandings, as to give indulgence to the principle contained in this objection. A long continuance of evil doing will change the nature of wrong unto right. If so, there is an end to the distinction between virtue and vice. Your fathers left the Negroes in bondage, as an inheritance to you. Does this justify you in retaining them? No. If the first dealer and the first buyer acted contrary to justice, the constant retainer cannot be guiltless. You condemn the principle, but justify the practice. Act consistently, I beseech you, touch not, taste not, handle not the unclean thing. Let me call your attention to another fact. You have a slave of thirty years of age in your possession. He was born in your house. By natural laws, and according to the first principles of civil liberty, he was born equally free with your son. Who has, upon him, committed the robbery, by which he has been deprived of his natural rights? Yourself. Lay not the blame on your parents, for you imitate their example. The text applies to you directly. You have stolen from his connections, from himself, a man born in your house. Have you purchased him? You have countenanced an impious commerce, the best reparation you can make is to set your slave at liberty. You cannot afford to perform acts of such extensive benevolence. Do justice, however. Deal mercifully with your servant. When the wages, which he might have annually earned shall have amounted to the purchase money, and lawful interest, set him immediately at liberty from your control. If you are a worthy character, he shall afterwards voluntarily serve you, unless he be ungrateful indeed, provided you give him due wages. After confessing the system to be indefensible, it is to be hoped you will not give your suffrages to render it permanent. I shall proceed, 3. To make some improvement. In his walk of faith, the Christian considers himself bound to the practice of every known duty. By the test of obedience, the nature of his love to God is tried. This is the love of God's, that ye keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. 
17 This disposition inclines and fits him for making a practical improvement of just theory. And the view we have now had of the evils of the slave trade may be improved for several uses. 1. We should lament over the distressing sufferings of our brethren in bondage. True piety does not blunt the feelings of benevolence. Commiseration with the wretched is strongly inculcated. Weep with those that weep. Evangelic principle forms the soul to it. For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye, runneth down with tears. 18 The situation of the African is miserable. In his native country he is in darkness. He has no vision, no well-grounded hope the inhabitant of a waste wilderness, without God in the world. He becomes acquainted with foreigners, on whom a Christian education has been bestowed. They profess the religion, which breathes peace and goodwill towards men. He knows them to his sorrow. New occasions for war are afforded, and new and terrible instruments for prosecuting war provided, for the already ferocious tribes of the wilderness. He is taken captive, and is sold for a bauble. He is chained in the suffocating dungeon of a floating prison. He is brought into a strange country. The whip is brandished over his head. With its lash his back is furrowed. In the land boasting of civilization, and enlightened by the gospel luminary, he is doomed to ignorance, to rudeness and wretchedness. There is power on the side of the oppressor, but on his side there is no power. 19 His genius is cramped, the energies of his mind are suppressed, his moral feelings are eradicated, his soul, his immortal soul, is left to perish without the knowledge of Jesus. Oh, slavery, thou art a bitter draft. Miserable African, we lament over your condition. We are sensible of your sufferings. We sympathize with you. We recognize you as a brother. We recommend you to the protection of our Heavenly Father. We consign you to the arms of our dear Redeemer. God of mercy. Let the sighing of the prisoner come, before thee according to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those that are appointed to die. 22. We may improve the view we have taken of the Negro slave trade, in order to stimulate us to present duty. The benevolence of the Christian is not like the sensibility of a writer of romance, ready to be exercised on imaginary objects, but blind to objects of reality. While we drop the tear of compassion over the slave, let us inquire, whether or no we can do anything to alleviate his sorrows. Cannot your agency diminish the number of slaves, and your behavior be an example to others, to contribute their influence to the same desirable end? I cannot demand of you, my brethren, to sacrifice your property imprudently, in purchasing the liberty of your neighbor's slaves, but justice, your religion, requires that you should cease to be slaveholders yourselves. With respect to the young, arrangements may be made, to defray, by their services, the expense of their support and their education, before they are emancipated. To this you have a right, and to no more. The middle-aged has already repaid your expenditures. If he has been purchased, charity would recommend it to you, nevertheless, to set him at liberty and justice demands, that you should retain him in bondage no longer, than is sufficient to recompense you for your trouble and expense. With reference to the old, the inactive and the infirm, godly wisdom will direct the conscientious to such measures, as may be best calculated to secure their advantage, and enable you to maintain an honorable testimony against this abominable usurpation. Be merciful to them. Cultivate their understandings. 
make them feel themselves to be men. Raise them to the rank, which God has assigned them. Teach them the doctrines of the gospel. Give them habits of industry. Pray for them. Sacrifice the property, which the civil law gives you in them, on the altar of religion. Seek for a recompense from on high. Heaven can reward you. Godliness is profitable unto all things. It has the promise of the life which now is, and of that which is to come. 21, 3. The preceding discussion may be improved for discovering the duty of gospel ministers. These occupy an important office in the house of God. They are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. They are commissioned not so much, to please as to teach. The volume of Revelation contains their instructions. In negotiating a treaty between heaven and earth, they are not to neglect its directions. It contains no useless articles to be expunged or neglected. Much prudence, much prayer, and large communications of the Divine Spirit, are indeed necessary to constitute fallible man a wise steward of the manifold grace of God. This is promised, and he faithful who promised, and able to perform. 22 Mankind have no right to be offended at ministers for directing them on the head of slavery. My text is in the Bible. I have an undoubted right to discuss it. Is the discussion scriptural, and is it well timed? Are the only questions men have a right to ask? My brethren in the ministry, if you lament over this evil, let your voice be raised aloud against it. The subject is important, to handle it rashly may be dangerous. Offense may be undesignedly given, and unjustly taken, which may march the peace of the church, and hinder the propagation of the gospel. Offenses must come. Woe to him by whom they are introduced. This should make you vigilant, but not silent. Some, indeed, have pushed their opposition to political evils too far. This may have had an influence in deterring others from going as far as duty directed. There is a timidity natural to some characters, which detains them from prosecuting public subjects. Some, who are traitors to their masters cause, neglect some articles in their instructions, while negotiating in his name, and there is a meekness and diffidence cherished by true piety, which render ministers more disposed to evangelic discussions, than to inveigh against public immoralities. But remember, brethren, that in preaching the gospel you are not to neglect the law. It is to be used as a schoolmaster, to lead men to Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to every one who believeth. And you are also to teach, that the gospel is designed to establish the law, and dispose men to obey its dictates. You may comfort yourselves, probably, while neglecting your duty upon such subjects, by classing yourselves with an apostle, and desiring to know nothing but Jesus, and Him crucified. Be assured, however, that the resolution of that inspired writer was not recorded with a view, to militate against the express precept of our arisen Lord. He commanded his ambassadors not only to preach the gospel to all nations, but also to teach them all things whatsoever he commanded. 23 Considering the guilt and the danger accompanying the practice of holding our brethren in perpetual slavery, it will be serving God in your generation prudently, to exercise the right of giving public warning against it. Let us do our duty, leaving the consequences to God. 4. The view we have taken of this subject also affords a practical lesson to our legislators and statesmen. To you belongs the maintenance of justice and order in society. Your influence, 
your authority, your wisdom, can be of signal service to the nation, if they are all exerted in the cause of righteousness. Engage yourself speedily in rectifying this evil practice, of holding your brethren in slavery. It is inconsistent with the natural rights of man, it is condemned by the scriptures, it is at war with your republican institutions, it ruins the minds and the morals of thousands, and it leaves you exposed to the wrath of heaven. It is easy to see tint, although it supports indolence and the pride of families, it is truly detrimental to the wealth, the industry, the population and the safety of the commonwealth. 24 It may be difficult to point out a safe mode of redressing the evil. Every plan is accompanied with difficulties. To export them to Africa would be cruel. To establish them in a separate colony would be dangerous. To give them their liberty, and incorporate them with the whites, would be more so, the sins of the fathers, it is to be feared, will be visited on their children. But it is more safe to adopt any one of those plans than continue the evil. By a national repenting and forsaking, we may find mercy. Providence can dispose of all things in our favor. We have a right to expect that he will ward off or mitigate the threatening consequences, if the nation would venture upon his kindness to do their duty. It must appear ridiculous to Europeans, to hear of an American patriot signing with one hand declarations of independency, and with the other brandishing a whip over an affrighted slave. Can you be sincere friends to liberty and order, and tolerate this dreadful traffic? From repeated and accurate calculations it has been found that slavery is unfavorable to the wealth of nations. Listen to the remarks of a writer of observation and eminence. With what execration should the statesman be loaded, who, permitting one half of the citizens thus, to trample on the rights of the other, transforms those into despots, and these into enemies destroys the morals of the one part, and the amor patrie, of the other. With the morals of the people, their industry also is destroyed. Of the proprietors of slaves a small proportion is ever seen to labor, and can the liberties of a nation be thought secure, when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the public that their liberties are the gift of God. That they are not to be violated but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country, when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever, that an exchange of situation is among possible events, that it may become probable by supernatural interference. 25 You will find it true, that righteousness exalteth a nation, and that sin is a reproach to any people. 26 In concluding this discourse, let me warn my hearers to consider the evil hand they may have in the system of slavery and especially that they are by nature in the worst of slavery themselves. Come for deliverance from the bondage of sin into the Son of God for, whom the Son makes free, shall be free indeed. Standing fast in this liberty, use it in the service of God and of man. You are no more your own, ye are bought with a price glorify God in your bodies and spirits which are His. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.